On uh, February 19th of this year, we preached a message entitled Passing the Baton, where we informed the church that we are beginning the process of passing the baton of lead pastor from me to David Bush. In that message, I used an illustration of a relay race and that crucial exchange zone, this 20-meter exchange zone, where the incoming runner at full speed engages the outgoing runner who's ramping up to full speed and the baton is passed, and off he goes or she goes so that little to no momentum is lost in the race. Today, we're in the exchange zone. So the the baton is passing. We've been watching the runners circle the track for the last six months. Began on the 19th of February. The gun sounded, pa, and they got out of their blocks. We've been watching him run. Today, we're in the exchange zone. This is a crucial zone. You could lose a race right here if you drop the baton. You can lose a race if you take too long to pass that baton. I don't believe we're going to because it's the gospel race that we've been called to run, and he's calling us to run it as a church. And uh, so... For that reason, we've entitled the message this morning, The Exchange Zone, Passing the Baton to the Next Generation. The Exchange Zone, Passing the Baton to the Next Generation. The Apostle Paul gives us instruction on how to do that in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. So please turn there. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. Let me be very quick to acknowledge, I am not the Apostle Paul, David is not Timothy. But, we stand in a long line of Paul and Timothys, down through the centuries, who have passed the baton to one another. We are are in that long line of Paul and Timothys. In the first century, the Apostle Paul was a prisoner in Rome, Timothy was a pastor in Ephesus. Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey. And Paul was passing the baton of ministry to Timothy. Timothy was a timid man, and Timothy was worried about, can I do it, and I'm going to miss Paul, and often young men who are gifted that way can be somewhat timid. And Paul is, is passing that baton to Timothy. So he writes this to Timothy. The audience for this text is Timothy. Paul is talking to Timothy, but he invites the church in Ephesus to bear witness to his charge to Timothy. This morning, I'm going to actually be preaching to one person, David. This is for you, David, but I'm inviting you, church, to bear witness to this charge to David because this charge to David really affects you big time and you have part of this charge. But it's to you, David. It's to you, buddy. So let's read the charge to David Alistair Bush. 2 Timothy 4, 1-8. I, Paul, charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having 
itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I remember when this charge was given to me on November the 17th, 1996. I was in Orlando, Florida at Metro Life Church, and the elders of that church read this text over me and passed the baton of Christian ministry into South Florida into my hands. And the man who led that service and read this text to me is with us today, he and his wife. And so I would like to ask Danny Jones and his wife, Melody, to please stand up. Church, I think we need to thank them for it, so please stand. Today, I'm taking that baton that Danny handed to me in 1996, and I'm putting it in your hands, David. And here's the charge. Here's what the text says to David. And by extension to all of us, but to David. On the screen. Preach the gospel with your lips and your life. Preach the gospel with your lips and your life. There's going to be two points in this message. Point number one is going to talk about preaching the gospel with his lips. And point number two is going to talk about preaching the gospel with his life. And these two imperatives, these these two commands are contained in verse 2 and in verse 5. Verse 2 speaks of preaching the gospel with your lips, and verse 5 speaks of preaching the gospel with your life. Kevin Abegg, one of the elders here, having read the manuscript in a collaborative sense, we passed the manuscript around during the week to, to get input from one another. He says, Al, remember to tell the church that though they are witnesses of this charge, and it's primarily to David, David's call as an elder, our call as elders, are to equip you for the ministry. So actually, he's being charged to preach the gospel with his lips and his life so that he could provide an example for you to preach the gospel with your lips and your life. Because there are places you go that we can't go. He's calling you to preach the gospel with your lips and your life in the neighborhoods where you live in the schools where you learn, in the workplace where you labor, and in the stores where you shop. So two points, two groups of imperatives. Point number one, preach the gospel with your lips, David. Guys, let's look at verse two again on the screen. Preach the word... Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. David, this, these imperatives come 
with the gospel on either side of it. So the imperative to preach the gospel with your lips has to start with the gospel that you're going to preach with your lips. And we see that in verse 1 that speaks of Jesus as the judge of the living and the dead. And we see it in verse 8 that speaks of Jesus as the righteous judge who will give a crown of righteousness to the person who is looking to his appearing. So let me assure you, it is Jesus, the righteous judge, who will judge you on that day for how you preach the gospel. And it's Jesus, the righteous judge, who will enable you to preach the gospel righteously on this day. So he calls you to preach it, he's going to enable you to preach it, and then he's going to lay up a crown for you for having preached it. What a Savior. And it's not just David, but it's all of us, church. It's this gospel that we preach that enables us to preach it with our lips in the worlds in which we live. David, the imperatives here begin with preach the word in verse 2. If you can show that again, Raul, preach the word. That is the one imperative that overshadows these other four imperatives. Preach the word of God. And here's how you're to preach it, David. You're to preach it in season and out of season. Church, all that means is you're to preach it when you feel like it and when you don't feel like it. You may or may not know this. It's about a 20 to 30 hour process for us to preach God's word. The longer you've preached, the fewer hours. As you're just starting your career as a preacher, the more hours. And there are going to be weeks when you don't feel like putting into 20 to 30 hours a week. I know your home life is perfect and idyllic, but there may be a week when it has a few problems in it. When the dog bites, when the bee stings, you know. (laughs) When the termites appear. When the homeowners association sends letters. Preach the word in season and out of season. And church, pray that this man would preach the word in season and out of season. Pray for him. It is hard work. There are spiritual forces that would oppose the preaching of God's word. I'm not saying it's harder to be a pastor than any other profession, but there's an added layer of spiritual opposition to being a pastor because Satan hates the church because he hates God. And Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And there are some weeks when you're in your office and it feels like the gates of hell are screaming at you. And you're looking at God's word and saying, A, I'm a big sinner, I don't, I don't, I'm not worthy of preaching it. And B, I don't know what it says and I'm going to have to preach it in seven or eight days. And C, I just am overwhelmed right now. So pray for him. Pray for him again in verse 2 on the screen that he would preach it reproving us, rebuking us, and exhorting us. We need to be reproved for our foolish thoughts about God, ourselves, and this world. We need that reproof. We want that reproof. Church, this, this, we need to come wanting it every Sunday. Is it Sunday yet? We need to come wanting to be rebuked for our wrong behavior by God's word. God always does it graciously. God loves his children. He disciplines his children. The way he does it is through his word. When we start wandering away from it, we need to hear it. And listen, pray that David would preach it by way of exhortation. When we come broken and weak and disheveled and dispirited and disjointed, discombobulated 
We need David to preach the word to us, to exhort us. With complete patience and teaching. Why? Why? Because verses 3 and 4, that's why, on the screen. It was true in the first century in the church in Ephesus, and it's true in the 21st century in the church in Miami Gardens. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into the myth. David, we need you to fulfill this charge because we are easily deceived and we want preaching that that bends to our passions rather than bending our passions to God's word. And we have itching ears and we wander into myths so easily. So I think, church, the application for us is that we would want to be preached to. We would want to hear God's word. You would be excited about it. You would engage it with your family after the service. You would go out to lunch today and talk about God's word. You would pray for the, the, the preacher. Uh, you would want to learn how to preach. Who knows if God's calling you to preach, but you'd want to understand the mechanics. How is a sermon made? You'd want to approach the word of God with this seriousness and hunger for it. So that's the first charge, David. Preach the word with your lips. Here's the second charge on the screen. Preach the gospel with your life. Preach the gospel with your life. The second clump of imperatives, an imperative is simply a command. The second clump of commands is in verse 5. As for you, Timothy, David, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, Fulfill your ministry. The theme of 2 Timothy is Paul saying to Timothy, endure suffering because you're going to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Don't back away from it, timid Timothy, but endure, press into it. That's, the, that's really the, the theme of 2 Timothy, and it's the theme of this, these imperatives here. Just like the main imperative of verse 2 is preach the word, the main imperative of verse 5 is to suffer well, to be sober-minded, to understand what you're getting into, to endure suffering, to do the work of an evangelist, to fulfill your ministry. David, you're going to fulfill your ministry as you persevere amid suffering and opposition from attacks from without and doubts from within. And they're both going to hit you. And some days they both hit you at the same time. Just sandwich you. But persevere. Don't give up. This is what Paul wrote earlier in Colossians chapter 1. In verse 24 to 26. Colossians chapter 1 in verses 24 through 26 on the screen. Speaking of his call as a pastor. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. David, rejoice in your sufferings for the sake of this church. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. You cannot die for the church. There's nothing lacking in Christ's death for our sins, but all that's lacking is applying it to the church. And he's chosen you to lead in that. Church, not just David, but all of us. He provides the leadership. We follow him in that. Verse 20, 
5, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God. David, this is a stewardship from God, not from man, from God. That was given to me for you. Church, he's been given that stewardship for us. To make the word of God fully known. There it is. Preach the word. Verse 26. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. And not only, David, are you to persevere as a pastor and suffer as a pastor, but David, you're to persevere and suffer as a believer so that you provide us an example, both as a pastor and preaching the word and as a believer how to suffer. Church, we're called to suffer. What? Yes, Peter, one of Paul's contemporaries, wrote the following in 1 Peter 2, verses 19 to 25. 1 Peter 2, 19 to 25. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure it? But... If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Verse 21, for to this you have been called. Whoa, wait a second. I didn't read that fine print. You've been called to suffer. Why? Verse 21, because Christ also suffered for you. There's the gospel. If you're not a Christian, here comes the gospel. Listen carefully. If this doesn't make any sense to you, if you're about ready to leave because you don't want to be part of something that brings you suffering, you're looking to avoid suffering, you'd like to have something that just blesses you all the time. Your best life now. Well, listen to me. God calls you to suffer because eternity is better than anything you can imagine. Listen, here's the gospel. This is life. It's counterintuitive. But it's true. Verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Here's the gospel. Here's the gospel. Here's the gospel. Listen to it. If you're not saved, oh, repent and believe now. Verse 22, he committed no sin, he being Jesus. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, Jesus, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, Jesus, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. There's that judge again, David. Entrust yourself to the one who judges justly when you're maligned and when you're opposed, when you deserve it and you do something wrong, and when you don't deserve it, you've done actually something well, you're going to suffer. Entrust yourself to the judge. Verse 24, he himself, oh church, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross. That we might die to sin, thank you Jesus, and live to righteousness, thank you Jesus. By his wounds you have been healed, church, for you were straying like sheep, oh yes, all the time, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. That's why we suffer. Jesus was poured out for our sins by dying on the cross. Paul understood he was about to be poured out in death because of the gospel. Look at verse 6. Verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, 
and the time of my departure has come. Paul knew that his death was imminent. And Paul was saying to Timothy, Jesus' suffering empowers me to suffer here in Rome for the gospel. You persevere in preaching the gospel and living the gospel and because his suffering will empower you to do so. He said that to Timothy in the first century. He's saying it to you in the 21st century. And he's saying it to us, church. Preach the gospel with your life. And listen to what Paul said in verse 7. Jack, verse 7 reminds me of your dearly departed wife. This is Jack Bush, David's father. And the memorial that we celebrated last week, last Sunday, I believe this was being said of Susan. Church, may it be said of all of us on that day when we depart. Verse 7, Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul here is going back to three metaphors that he used earlier in 2 Timothy. Earlier he said, Timothy, I want you to suffer and I want you to persevere like a soldier suffers and perseveres in the mission, like an athlete suffers and perseveres to train to win the race, as a farmer perseveres and suffers in working hard in anticipation of the crops. What Paul is saying is, I have fought the good fight. I have run the race God has chosen for me to run, and I have kept the faith. David, fight the fight of faith. We're right behind you. David, compete and run that race to which you've been called. We're right behind you. And David, keep the faith. David, keep the faith. Preach the gospel. Preach the word. Sound doctrine, even when we buck against it and rebel against it and push back against it or the world pushes against it, keep the faith. And what gave Paul the strength to do that is verse 8, where we conclude this morning. On the screen. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. In verse 6, Paul speaks present tense. I am being poured out. In verse 7, Paul speaks past tense. I have fought. I have run. I have kept. In verse 8, he's looking future tense. This future grace this future crown of righteousness that I'm going to receive, not because I earned it, no, but because Jesus, the righteous judge, earned it for me, that empowers me to run the race, to keep the faith, and to fight the good fight of the gospel. This crown was a garland that was placed on the head of the competitors in the Greek games, the Olympic games. The crown that you have is far more valuable than that. The crown that God has for us is a crown that we don't deserve, church. Oh, this is the good news. We don't deserve it. You can't deserve it. Jesus won it for you. 
and then promises to lay it up for you. Notice that's the passive tense. The crown of righteousness laid up for me. Not earned by me, laid up for me. David, church, may this fuel our faith to pass the baton off right now, trusting the one who started the race, and that's Jesus Christ. Amen? So to that end,